The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. Gary redesigns F1's failed spray guards. We talk Red Bull dominance, untangle the order in the chasing pack, and answer your questions about wind tunnels and airboxes. The Hungarian Grand Prix certainly throw up its fair share of fascinating Formula 1 technical stories, so it's the ideal time for myself, Ed Straw, and the star of the show, Gary Anderson, to get together for another episode of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. There's plenty for us to talk about, what with the Red Bull upgrades and some very interesting performance patterns to untangle. And Gary, the Hungarian's always an interesting track, isn't it? So, was it one you enjoyed watching from home? Yeah, I always enjoy Hungary. It's it's, uh, one of those sort of uh, demanding circuits, you know, where there's it's a real sort of uh, old school circuit where there's runoff areas and grass and um, curbs and you know it, you have to as a driver you have to be disciplined um, and that's always very very difficult through those long corners turn one turn two and the, the last two corners you know 180 degree you just you're sitting there for a long time middle of the corner and um, basically the balance is quite important through that through that section because if you have you know a bit of understeer you're just waiting you can't get on the throttle. And when you do get on the throttle, you get a snappy rear end. So it's always been demanding. It was, you know, it was a slower circuit, I suppose you might call it, before they lengthened the straight, which made quite a big difference to it. Um, we talk about Monaco, you know, being sort of dirty aero, just put a pilot on the car no matter what it does to it, really, drag-wise. Uh, whereas Hungary is just not quite like that. It's about getting as much downforce on the car as you, you can, but still pretty efficient. And the big problem really is the fact that the average speed's so slow means that the cooling is a is an issue for brakes and for um and for the engine because you know there is no high speed parts of it that really sort of cools the car well and uh so you have to run more cooling exits which again loses some of that downforce so it's a uh, it's a demanding circuit some people make the right decisions and some people don't i suppose but it's uh, it's always interesting you have to drive it you have to drive it well and i think once you do that you're you know it's a, it's a completely different circuit yeah, and that's what makes it one of the most interesting ones. I've always liked the Hungarian, actually, even though it's quite unpopular at time. But uh, yeah, I think that's why you get these quite compressed uh, fields and sometimes get these slight surprises in qualifying and that kind of thing. But as always, we're actually going to start off with a tech topic of Gary's choice for part one of the podcast. So what's grabbed your attention from the world of F1 tech in the past week or so? Well, we've heard a lot about um, trying to control the spray and the wet um, and obviously you know, again, we had a bit of a, a wet practice session in, in the Friday in Hungary. Um, so you can see how how the spray gets, you know, dissipated at the back of the car from the rear wheels and from the diffuser. Now, the FIA have been looking at some ways of, of doing a clip-on device, I suppose you might call it, which would allow them to run in in dangerous conditions. Um, it's one of those sort of situations where I'd, I'm not quite sure how you do it, to be honest. It's... it's it's going to be very, very difficult to make a significant improvement. Um, the bits and pieces I've seen from the FIA, I'm not 100% sure that it's it's where I'd be heading. But at the end of the day, you know, we, we have seen some catastrophic accidents. Um, and we're heading to Spa, you know, next week, which is obviously a circuit where you can get lots and lots of rain. It's high speed. The parts of it are blind. So that's the sort of thing that's really a problem. Uh, you need to make sure that you have as much control over that spray as possible. Otherwise, you just have to stop the race and you just can't run. So it's going to be very difficult because these cars are massive vacuum cleaners. You know, they suck everything up that's around them and they spit it out the back. 
that's why they create downforce from underneath the car. So stopping them doing that is going to be a, a bit of a task. I'm sure there's a, a percentage influence you can put on it, but I'm not sure it's as, it's as much as you uh, as you really need to sort of say, okay, rain doesn't matter anymore. So uh, we'll wait and see. Yeah, it's very interesting. So obviously I did the test at Silverstone. It's a straight line test. They had Mercedes there with the uh, the wheel covers. And Mercedes had made some contribution to the engineering design of these, by which I mean the FI came up with the shapes. But obviously you can come up with the shapes and the basic idea, but you actually need someone to engineer it. So that's what Mercedes was brought in to do. It doesn't mean they designed them, but more making those structures. And they, yeah, they ran them with Mick Schumacher and they had Oscar Piastri there in a McLaren, which is a normal trim as a kind of control and to run in spray and all that kind of thing um yeah it was kind of characterized as a failure but it's the first time they'd run these so this was very much a first attempt but uh i had a chat uh with a couple of other journalists with nicholas tombasis the head of uh fia single seater technical matters so he's effectively the, the head regulations honcho for f1 you could say and he's been very involved in this this project doing all the cfd work etc and it was interesting because Obviously, he did allude to the fact that obviously the wheels are only part of the, the cause of the spray. There's also the spray that's, that's caused coming out from under the underfloor. And obviously, you have to remember that the, the car's going through air that is full of water droplets. And obviously, simulating all that is very, very complicated once it's in the flow regime of the car. But he did say something that slightly surprised me, which was that it was more difficult than expected. And it wasn't just a case of coming up with a fairly simple design and putting it on. I must confess purely as as an interested layman on tech. I'm not an engineer, but when it was announced, I thought this is a laudable enterprise, but this is going to be quite difficult. And it surprised me to hear him say, actually, we thought this would be reasonably straightforward. They even talked about maybe having them ready for the second half of this season. And we should note, these are just bolt-on parts to be used in the most extreme wet conditions to allow them to run to avoid a Spa 21. But did it surprise you that he was quite so... I don't want to use the word blasé about it, but it did surprise me. They thought it would be a quite simple endeavour. Yeah, it does a bit because, you know, all you've got to do is drive down the motorway and you'll see what spray's about, you know, it's from cars to trucks. Um, and whenever you consider that there is no limitation on what people could do to a car or a truck or a van, uh, a normal road car, to, to reduce that spray, which is dangerous, you know, the first thing you'll, you'll do whenever you get into heavy rain on the motorway is slow down a bit because... Um, you know, the spray makes it very, very difficult to see. And multiply that by, you know, a hundredfold because of the, the ground effect underfloor and and pulling all that water in around the car. Um, it, it's no surprise to me. You know, if you just look at the, the way the water flows coming off the front wheels and uh, tucks in underneath the floor, um, you know, we talk, we, they talk about this 60, 80 litres per second of, of water pumping that the tyre can do. Well, that water has to go somewhere. All that water pumping is doing is is concentrating it in an area, so that it's you know you can see it whenever you you look at the wheels. It's it's coming out the sides and out the back as you pump the water through underneath the tire. Um, so containing that is going to be very very difficult. It's a massive amount of of water droplets, as you say, and I don't think it's any easy task. Um, I'm I'm very surprised that somebody with the, his level of expertise would actually make a statement like that. They thought it was easy. Because no matter what you do, nothing is easy. And it will always have consequences somewhere along the line. So, I, as I say, I think you could probably influence a certain percentage of it. But from my point of view, you know, if, if you were doing a very good job, you'd be talking about 10, 15, 20% at the best of influence on that, on that spray. You'll never, ever, you know, make an influence of 80%. No way. Not, not as long as you keep on researching. 
So uh, it's not going to be easy. Well, the objective is to split the difference there because they're looking for about a 50% reduction in the spray to make it uh, possible to see. And if you can see, provided the aquaplaning is not too serious, you can race. But they're going to do a, a next version of them that are like to enclose the wheel more. Obviously, it's difficult in this format to uh, to, to show everyone what the, the first version looked like. If you head to the race website, there is a story I did at the weekend about them. And we'll have something from Gary later in the week that will we'll include those. But they're basically, on all four wheels, they were two parts. Guards. There was one kind of at 12 o'clock and then another one sort of at 7 o'clock if you think yourself looking at the wheel. So a two-part one. And it does seem like they're going to have to go much more in close in some way. And you've been having a little bit of a think and you sent me a few sketches that you were using to aid your thinking uh, over the weekend. So once again, using the uh, the, the magic of this utterly non-visual format, <laughs> what would be your approach for V2 of these spray guards? Because V1 are just a no-go. They, they didn't, in fact, he said no tangible effect on the spray. They were they were that ineffective. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, if you take, if you take a normal flow around the wheel, um, um, Without the fact that it's you know there's all these vortices generated down the side of the car and um, the fact that it's ground effect underneath the car moving it, if you just take a normal wheel and put it into into a, a wind tunnel or such and watch and look at the flow model the flow, basically looking from the outside, you know the the airflow up to about what we call ten o'clock splits separates and goes around the side of the tire. Um, and down at the bottom of the tyre, what's going on the ground, you get what's called tyre um, tire squish. So in other words, the, the air that's between the tyre and the ground um, is squeezed out the sides. And then at about 10 o'clock, that airflow starts to go over the top of the tyre um, to, uh, yeah, it basically, you know, it's, it separates around the tyre in the best way possible. So the void behind the tyre the, the is trying to pull the air over the top of the tyre, and it's trying to pull it around the sides of the tyre. And also the high pressure in front of the tyre is pushing it around the sides of the tyre. So you get a lot of movement around the sides and all trying to join up again behind the the tyre, especially down in the contact patch area where the tyre is just coming off the ground because that's the lowest pressure area. It can't get fed by very much down there to to fill up that void. So it's that lower half of the tyre at the back from the sort of axle centre line downwards that you need to do something. Um... And again, I, I sort of equate it to a bit like you know what you want to do with a hover mower. You know, you keep it low at the size and you blow air out. Um, but because it's down low, then you know that air doesn't go everywhere. It just means that the uh, it hovers. And the same with this this mudguard device. You want to get it as low to the ground as possible, but you've got to let the air and the water get out of there somehow. So, you know, the one thing you do want to do is make the cars wider. So you you can't really do much with the flow that's coming around the side of the tire, the outside of the tire. Because that would make the cars wider. It would mean that the guys couldn't change tire, change wheels easily. So there's always the restrictions that are coming with actually achieving something. As I say, that if you're going to make an influence on it, it's that from axle center line down to the ground, the width of the tire, and on the inside you want to try and contain, because a lot of that airflow that's uh, displaced by the contact patch in front of the tire is is sucked inwards to the diffuser. And that's why we got what they call this, this sort of mouse hole which is given it room to be pulled into the diffuser there. Um, because the one thing you can't do here is just sort of not try to uh, allow it to do what it wants to do. You can you can sort of give it a bit of a shuffle and try to make it do something a little bit different, but you can't just make it do something completely different. So you need to pick up that airflow that's being displaced by the, the inside of the front tyre and uh, make sure you contain it and bring it down low into that low, low 
pressure area behind the tire where it's coming off the ground. So it's a bit of a low-down mudguard, I suppose you might call it. Um, but I think it's possible, and I think it's possible if you were to do it so it clips onto the existing brake backs quite easily, you know, sort of dial fitting with a couple of mechanical fasteners. So it is actually something that you could fit on in, you know, a minute or whatever. If you did have to do it, it was in a, a practice session because it got very wet or even during a race if they had a, you know, a, a red flag because of the rain. So there is a practical solution, but again, I don't think you'd ever get 50% um, and keep an open wheel formula. Yeah, their objective is to have them as, as things that can be bolted on in stoppages or red flags or before sessions rather than kind of during the, the track being open. But this is all stuff to be worked out and they may find a solution that can be done even more quickly. They're saying maybe a five to ten minute kind of thing. Currently, they're mounted direct onto the upright with some kind of support. So there's still a lot to be done. They are going to do a version two. Tom Bassis said that they're hoping to test that uh, in the autumn and they're still pushing on with it. I have to say, although we... Um, we kind of be we were joking about being slightly surprised that that uh, they, they underestimated the scale of the challenge, but I do think it's laudable that the FI are doing this work properly. You know, they're doing a lot of CFD analysis. They're setting a, an ambitious target, one that might be impossible, but you never know. It might be possible. You never know until you really work through it. So I like the fact they're being rigorous and analytical and saying, right, we've got this thing we would love to do, and if it could stop a repeat of Spa Twenty One, that would be brilliant, and. They're not setting a specific timeline on it. They're saying, right, we want to do it as soon as possible, but they're not throwing some idea in the rules and saying, right, we'll make it work or just sort of half-baking it as they might have done a few decades ago, just make a change and hope it works. They're really putting the work and the effort into it. And I would say, even if this project fails, then it will have succeeded insofar as it's posed the question, can we do this effectively? And the answer is, actually, no, it's not possible. If that's the right answer, great. The key is you get the right, the right answer at the end of the process. Yeah, I mean, uh, we always must move forward. And I mean, you know, typical example is seat belts or the halo system or, you know, rollover bars or whatever. You know, they've all developed through time to be what they are now. So you never, you know, quite get it 100% in the first, the first, uh, the first hit. But what I'm saying is that it just, you know, you can set your ambitions too high as well. So you, sometimes it's better to accept a little, you know, a little and then get on with developing it. Now, you know, no matter what you do do, it will have consequences to the car's aerodynamics. You know, it's a bit like, um, like the old Porsches you used to get where the headlights popped up at night. You know, at night, nobody could see the aerodynamics or the clean lines over the bonnet, so it didn't really matter too much. Uh, in, this, in this case here, you don't want to be popping, popping these things on and suddenly there's a, a massive aerodynamic shift because in the wet, that's not what you want. You know, normally in a wet condition, really, if it goes from dry to wet, you drop a lot of front wing off the car because you don't want the car to be oversteery. So you need to be very careful with something like that around the rear wheels. It's not going to affect the diffuser dramatically, which will affect the rear downforce, so on and so forth. So there's a basically a big warning, a warning sign put up for the teams because your research is going to have to be done with these things off and these things on. And what does that do to your aerodynamic um, testing uh, restrictions? Um, you know, do you get more because of that? Because you're going to have to sort of in such research two different levels of car. It's uh, it's got consequences. It needs to be looked at carefully. Yeah, I think the principle they're aiming for is that it'll be disruptive, but because it's a spec parts, it's going to it'll either be put out to tender or it'll be a, a prescribed design that it'll be the same for everyone. But of course, not everyone's car's the same, so it will inevitably have a bit of a different influence on every car. So there'll be a bit of pushback from teams about that. But uh, given it's a design that's only meant to be used a few times a season for when it's the most wet, it's not just as soon as there's water on the track they put them on. 
I think they're willing to have quite a high tolerance for that. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see how they go with it. And, yeah, it's going to be a while before we see those. The absolute earliest we would see them will be next season. And I'd be quite surprised at this stage if they were ready for the start of next season, for example. So let's just wait and see how things go. And who knows, Gary, maybe they'll listen to this and uh, take your idea on board. And uh, we'll have a piece on the, the race website uh, later in the week. Uh, on that with a few sketches and hopefully an illustration that can show people in detail what you're talking about. You're listening to the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. For part two of the podcast, it's worth us trying to untangle some of the performance patterns we've seen recently in Formula One. But to start with, it is worth reflecting on Red Bull, which is the undisputed number one Max Verstappen's Hungarian Grand Prix victory. It was a record-setting 12th consecutive win, and that eclipses the mark set by McLaren in 1988 when they won 11 in a row before the infamous Italian Grand Prix when Ayrton Senna tangled with one-off Williams driver Jean-Louis Schlesser while lapping him at the start of the penultimate lap. So what do you make of that achievement, Gary? 12 wins in a row. Um, well, it's amazing, really, but you know we've got to look at a very, very different time. You know, back in 1988, reliability was a major issue for a lot of teams. So there was uh, McLaren. Not to take anything away from McLaren and, and their uh, the wins they achieved in that year. It was one of these sort of situations where finishing the race was a, was a was a hurdle. Um, so you know, the, McLaren did a very good job in what they did at that point in time. But it is it's just a different era. You know, now everything is sort of tested research whatever in the in the factory so you're going to a race you know knowing that probably all things being equal you'll you'll finish it it won't you won't have a reliability issue um so that obviously helps but on saying that and the competition is also a lot closer than it was you know back in the 88 but the competition it's a lot closer but it stays close if you know what i mean there's not there's not the the big variation that you used to see as well, you know, uh, McLaren's car in 1988 was, was incredible, but the sort of challengers were, there was a gap, big gap to the challengers, I suppose you might call it. Now that big gap's not there anymore. We're talking, you know, hundreds of a second and thousands of a second in some cases. So it's very easy to just trip up and, and lose a race because of the competition level. But Red Bull, you know, they've, they've really worked hard on everything they've done as a racing team to do it well that's from you know from the drs from, from the car itself from the drs from the the engine pack is the way they've got it now they uh the, the pit stops you know they have control over over everything really they are involved in everything that's going on in their car and um that shows i think and that's that's the the, the thing about it you know 12 in a row is pretty impressive no matter what happens a because of reliability and b because of keeping the the competition at bay so all around, I think they've done a fantastic job. But it's a, as I say, it's a, it's a different era to when McLaren achieved that. Yeah, very, very much so. And there is the possibility that Red Bull could do what McLaren came so close to doing, basically a couple of laps away from doing in 1988 and win all the races this season. I mean, I've been saying that's pretty unlikely, but that's 11 down, 11 to go, because the first race of that 12 uh, race streak was Abu Dhabi last year. So it's perfectly possible 
I keep saying that there'll come a point where they trip up or there'll be an engine penalty or something will go wrong for, for them. And But I'm always surprised it hasn't happened, given there have been so many races where Sergio Perez hasn't been there, so their insurance card hasn't been there. So let's see if they can do it. Certainly, I'm sure internally it'll be a, a target for the team. But obviously, Red Bull are pushing on as well. They had an upgrade package at the Hungara Ring that was effectively focused on cooling but had some other benefits clever use of the development opportunities presented within their aerodynamic testing restrictions regulations and evidence though wasn't there yes i mean it's always a difficult thing you know whenever you're um trying to develop a car the difference in developing developing something and and as i call it dotting the i's and crossing the t's which you would say was what that red bull development was is different from whenever you're sort of researching a, a different concept um, and the people you have doing it as well, you know, obviously w- what we see is that Red Bull, they seem to have a pretty good handle on how their car works aerodynamically, how they want it to work aerodynamically. And all they're doing is sort of exploiting it a little bit further. So if we just take the changes they had in their car, that which is mainly the, um, the radiator intake area, in my book, they've just exploited it a little bit further. Step one to step two to step three, um, you know, step one was a bigger radiator intake taller um, and narrower than uh, for Baku I think it was the um, slightly wider slightly shallower so getting more like a letterbox and then this this version in Hungary again a bit more of a letterbox as such that's just taking what your theory is of the airflow there and your flow visualization that you do at the circuit and you know looking at it and thinking how could I exploit this a little bit further so for for Red Bull to optimize that radiator intake, you know, it might have taken one one wind tunnel session or two wind tunnel sessions, you know, at the most. Whereas another team trying to come up with that Red Bull intake concept might take ten or twelve wind tunnel sessions to to optimize it because they're they're changing direction. So I I I think it sort of the way the regulations are and the way that Red Bull's understanding are it, it sort of plays into their hands. I. I can see them able to develop the car without the wind tunnel uh, research that some other teams would have to do, without the wind tunnel time that some other teams would have to, because they've got a better handle on what they've got, you know, to begin with. Yeah, and we should note that any advantage they're taking of the ATR in terms of the fact you can do some of the internal stuff outside of it, there's nothing, it's not exploiting a loophole, it's nothing sneaky, it's just what the rules allow and they're being sensible and practical with the yep. way they, they apply what they're doing. So absolutely the the right thing to do just shows how you've got to look at every angle. But that group behind is really interesting, isn't it? Because you've got McLaren, Mercedes, Ferrari and Aston Martin who have been in that group. McLaren have joined recently. Aston Martin are looking a little bit in danger of moving out of it the way they're going. Very difficult to untangle. I guess the takeaway from the weekend is that McLaren is firmly in the game because it thrived at a track that didn't play as well to its supposed strengths as Silverstone did. So, big positive for McLaren. A big positive, yes. But I mean, and for the two drivers, you know, whenever you consider uh, how uh, Oscar Pastry has driven, being a rookie, it's quite incredible. Um, I think he'll have learned a lot from Hungary because Hungary isn't just about speed. Come the race, it isn't just about speed. It's about looking after the tyres. It's it's one of the hardest on tyres there is to keep them alive. And obviously he struggled a little bit with that. But that's experience, you know, that's understanding it. Because once the tyres overheat with you, you're struggling and you can't slow down enough to actually, you know, get and come back under, underneath you again. So that's an experience thing about how you drive the tyres. And But on the way there, he showed the speed that... Um, that McLaren will want to have from him. But as you say, uh, two circuits completely different, Silverstone and, and Hungary. And the car was was there uh, with Norris on the podium. 
uh, in second position twice. So they, you know, they seem to have leapfrogged everybody else to the extent that you know, starting the season badly, they learned a lot, but they bit the bullet and got on with it. As far as the changes to the car were concerned, you know, the the team now is working working very well, uh, both back at the factory and at the track. So I, I think that because of that learning curve coming from where they were the doldrums the first few races they've sort of got their aerodynamic philosophy and their heads sort of out as to what direction they want to take which direction they want to go in how they want to take the car there and it's it's about that more than anything else you know it's about the aero platform and how you manage that aero platform it's not just about getting a higher load aero platform or or uh, um you know moving the center pressure or whatever it's just about managing that center pressure shift and trying to get the best out of it between low speed and high speed corners, and I think they've got a handle on top of that. I think it's still, you know, it's still lacking a little bit here and there um, when it comes to the race, because you know, at the end of the day, it was a fairly straightforward race. Verstappen still won from from Norris by thirty three seconds, so that's a that's a pretty big gap. And we also don't know what was left in Verstappen's tank, because I think that uh, you know, there's a little bit more there if he push come to shove. But um, was that two tenths or was it half a second lap? Who knows? Because, you know, his fastest lap was a second faster than anybody else uh, in the race. So the Red Bull still has that dominating factor. But I'm sure Mercedes, um, I'm sure, uh, sorry, McLaren are embarrassing Mercedes a little bit for the fact that they've, you know, they've got there. Yeah, Lewis was on pole in Hungary, but then George Russell was on pole in Hungary last year in the Mercedes. So, you know, the, something suits the Mercedes around Hungary in new tyres and qualifying trim. Um, it, it did it last year, it did it this year. But as for the rest, I think, you know, as I say, I think McLaren are the, the ones that are, I wouldn't say they're going to keep Red Bull honest, but they are going to be, you know, somebody that Red Bull will be keeping an eye on in their, in their mirrors as such. Um, Mercedes, I think, um, you know, from day one, when Lewis was saying Friday that he, you know, he couldn't drive the car, um, and the worst car he's ever driven, to being on pole the next day and, totally jubilant and tears about it to be honest shows us something amiss there really I think something definitely amiss in, in their understanding of how the car works and it's it's not just about getting getting the best out of it and being on pole it's carrying that, that through the weekend and obviously it didn't happen it finished fourth yes it had a competitive race but it was a you know a long way off beating a Red Bull um, the thing with Ferrari is you know they could be anywhere they could be on the front row two cars or they could be out in, in Q1 um, and to be honest I think, as a team, they're just the same as the viewers. You know, we're watching it and thinking, "What's going to happen today?" Because something will happen, and their, you know, their choices and their strategies and that are always a bit questionable here and there. Sometimes they get it right, but most of the time they get it way wrong. Um, so they've got a lot of work to do in tidying up their act, I suppose you might call it. And again, Aston Martin, yeah, sad to see it, but you know, they started the season so strong, and it did look for a while like they were going to be, you know, a potential challenger. But I think it's one of those sort of situations. It's always difficult, and you know they, they've definitely gone the. Um, and you know, I'm wrong in saying this, probably, but they've definitely gone a the Red Bull clone route at the beginning of the year. And most of their top end designers and you know whatever came from or had Red Bull experience, so they brought along the Red Bull philosophy with them. And you know that's okay until you have to stand on your own two feet and take it somewhere else. And that's when it becomes difficult. So now I think we've got this situation where. Aston Martin need to, to prove that they know how to take the car forward themselves, which is really what McLaren are doing. They've sort of got themselves to a point where, yes, they've followed the direction of the Red Bull, um, but they still had to do it, you know, through and back. Um, so 
they just had to had to buy into the fact that we need to go find out why the Red Bull works so well and then try to um, exploit that as best possible from what we know and understand of our car. And that's what they're happy doing. And I think you know, the biggest thing is Mercedes are Mercedes are shy about biting the bullet and and uh, going that they're going that whole hog and are really buying into the concept. Every time we hear from Toto, it's about well, we tried the Red Bull solution and it doesn't produce the Dynaforce we've got. But obviously, there's uh, someone that's doing that's doing pretty good for Red Bull. Yeah, definitely, it must do better for all those. It was interesting, Aston Martin, because. Before the race and after qualifying, they were quite upbeat because they were saying, well, actually, if you look at percentage deficits, it's not that big. You know, it's okay. A few other teams have developed as well and are taking us on, but we're not too worried. We haven't lost ground. But then after the race, I had a chat to Mike Crack, their team principal, and he basically said, no, that actually this is a reality check because they were expecting to be stronger in the race. They thought they'd done the usual Hungaroring thing of giving away a little bit on Saturday and that they'd have a much stronger race car on Sunday. Then they had a pretty good race. And it's P9, P10. And that, that was really it. They didn't have the pace to do anymore. And I, I think that was a reality check in the purest sense in that Sunday morning, they thought things were, were going okay. But Sunday after the race, they thought, actually, we've got a bit of work to do here. So yeah, interesting to see how things go for Aston Martin in the second half of the season. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you understand the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, please send us a question to answer on a future episode of this podcast. It can be on absolutely anything, F1, ancient or modern, a technical question you always wanted to know the answer to. And as I always say, there's no question too simple or too complicated, although I try and take the simple ones and Gary the complicated one, actually. Very much Gary is the, the the man with the answer. So you can send us a written question to podcasts at therace.com. That's podcasts at the hyphen race.com. Or if you prefer, record a voice note and send it to us, letting us know who you are in the voice note and we'll play it in the show. Our first question today comes from Jacob from Australia, who says, McLaren has been talking about their wind tunnel coming. It feels like years. How does having your own wind tunnel help, and why does it take so long to build one? Of course, that wind tunnel project, pretty much complete now. Yes, pretty much complete. Well, you know, a wind tunnel itself, it's a massive structure. Um, and obviously for, for McLaren, they're um, increasing its size, they're increasing its its um Capabilities, I suppose, is the best way of putting it. Now, the, the thing about the wind tunnel is because of the, the wind tunnel restrictions, you want to get as much out of every wind tunnel run as you possibly can, how much information. So it's all about the data logging and, and running through the process of, of moving the model around. Uh, obviously, the ride height changes down the, down the straight have to be all logged. Uh, you get data every point. Uh, you, you'll do steering checks, you'll do roll, yaw, you'll, you'll take a car through a corner as such. You'll take a car down the straight and through a corner and you'll get a load of data on it. Uh, you'll do various different steering locks for slow-speed corners, high-speed corners. And that's all needs to be done by just the press of a button. Um, and then there's a, just a massive pile of data that comes out and, and that needs to get filtered and, and, uh, and look at the car and try and do a, a sort of trace of what the centre pressure is doing as the car goes down the straight what the drags do and go down the straight mainly, but centre pressure as well. Um, what the centre pressure does during braking, corner entry, mid-corner and exit for various different speed corners um, and different steering angle corners. So it is a very important piece of kit. Um, you know, it's a bit like, yeah, I don't know, I suppose, taking buying yourself a new uh, dishwasher or a washing machine or something and going up to there and looking at all these buttons trying to figure out how to make the thing work. 
um, not easy by any means. And you say you multiply that by about 10,000, and that's what you've got with a wind tunnel. It, it's one of those things where having your own wind tunnel means you you always need to recognize its sort of shortcomings um, because there will be shortcomings, whether it be, you know, how, how the effect of the front wing is relative to the ground clearance or the underflow relative to ground clearance. It'll always be a little bit of a shortcoming. If you've got your own wind tunnel and you can understand it, then you get better results from it. Um, it's one of those sort of things where you need to just make sure you understand what you're getting and how it reacts to the circuit. So, yeah, it takes a long time, a lot of money. I mean, a, a wind tunnel back in my day, I remember we got costings to build one um, at Jaguar and it was, I think it was $28 million at that point in time. Um, now you can probably multiply that by 10 or 5 at least, I suppose. Um before you, you get what you want. And so it's a lot of money, a lot of time, but when you've got it, it's your own little baby and you can, you know, you can use it to suit what you need to. I think it's, you know, this is where the sort of wind tunnel testing regulations come in and I'm not sure that it's the right thing to do to, to restrict wind tunnel time. If you want to spend the money on a wind tunnel, which everybody has nowadays, you should be able to run that wind tunnel you know, a certain amount of hours per day, not necessarily 24 hours a day, but just, you know, a certain amount of hours. There shouldn't be these restrictions that are there, really, because it's a it's a bit of an artificial way of trying to put a bandage on on a, a team using its tools to do a better job. And we've seen that bandage now on Red Bull, and, it, it you know, it's not working. So it's, it's not necessarily about the tool. The tool is part of it, but it's about having the people and the, the vision to sort of Take, take your aerodynamic package and move it forward because the, the, the tool, the wind tunnel is just the answer at the end of a spreadsheet it's what you put in there that, that gives you those numbers and, uh, and that's the important thing Our next question comes from Charlie Wigglesworth who said, I've been wondering recently about why today's and since 2014 and the return of the turbos F1 cars have airboxes above the driver's head while the turbo cars of the 1980s almost never had these. I understand that a naturally aspirated engine benefits from the pressure generated by having this intake in this position and I think the older turbo cars didn't need this as they could generate all the pressure they needed with a turbo, presumably drawing air in through the cycle intake. So my question is, why did designers not feel the need to put the top mounted airboxes on the cars then and why do they all have them now well yeah regulations have changed a little bit uh, through time and so it's quite uh, interesting if the if it if it wasn't necessary to have an engine cover you probably would look at other other avenues but you know you've got a rollover bar regulation which is where the rollover bar is we've seen that on the on the sauber interpretation with a sort of single pillar and and two side intakes or you know the the triangular roll bar which most most cars have of some sort but the, the regulations changed quite a few years ago because people were doing away with engine covers, which meant that the old team principal had nobody put a sticker from a sponsor on it. And that sort of, you know, got the fin in the back of the engine cover that you see on a lot on all the cars now, I think, is part of that regulation where there's a an area where you have to have bodywork. And because you have to have bodywork up there, which you know, as I say the team principal can get a sponsor for. Then um, you you use it for something, and and basically it's the same old deal. You know the the way the the whole thing has sort of evolved. It's it's there for the maybe the wrong reasons, but it's still there. It does two jobs now, and it's pointless having that bodywork up there. It has to have a width. It's a triangular section. It has to have from the side. It has to be a certain size. So it means that everybody has to have an engine cover of some sort. Again, for the sponsor. And then you might as well use it for something. Now a lot of the 
the cars now have, they've got a lot of the cooling fed by the rollover bar as well. So you'll see three holes, one in the middle probably for the turbo and one each side for cooling the hydraulics or an intercooler or something. Um, and that's because, you know, the cars, uh, downforce-wise, the side pod inlet is critical to the airflow that helps generate downforce. Up above the driver's head there, above the helmet, in, the, in that triangle, it's not so critical. So, you know, the compromise of the centre of gravity height by putting radiators on top of the engine, you know, is outweighed by the fact that aerodynamically you can make the car more efficient. Um, so you might as well use that as an intake up there for the turbo and for the for some cooling and exploit like Red Bull have done for the last race, you know, the, the radiator intake, mainly minimise it as best possible to generate more downforce from the car. It's just a compromise. Everything's a compromise. So, you know, you take your, your stab at it best possible and um, get the best out of the car just downforce-wise. It was interesting that when the last turbo era ended, so 1989, uh, Ferrari, John Barnard, the, the famous Ferrari 640, that of course won its first race early in that season, I'm going to say up until Mexico, that's from memory, so uh, it could have to be corrected, it actually didn't have a, a, a conventional high airbox intake, it had the sort of the side intakes and I think that meant it didn't get the same ram effect and all that kind of thing so it was just felt to be better and better for packaging so it that does show it's not quite such an automatic thing doesn't it it's, it's interesting when there's uh, uh when you do get this sort of convergence towards a standard style sometimes there's other ways to do it and then sometimes everything gets baked in because then the regulations kind of work around that and then suddenly that's just a fact of life for for a car design you couldn't get rid of it yeah i mean it is the time usually sort of goes around in a circle, I think, with the, the with the regulations and with the design. You know, we see it all, quite often or something will pop back up again over the years. And, and there's there's nothing there's nothing sort of stopping you from having a, a, an intake now that feeds the turbo somewhere else. But you do have to have that that body area, you know, as an airbox as such because of the regulations. So why do you want to put something else on the car whenever the airflow across some other part of the surfaces is just is as important, if not more important, than, than taking your airflow from above the driver's head. Above the head there, you know, the helmet's not the most aerodynamic piece of kit in the world. Uh, with the halo as well, you know, we see all the little fairing trims that they put on the halo to try and tidy up that airflow. There's, uh, up at that height, there's a lot of stuff going on. So at the end of the day, you, you know, you just try to manage it as best possible. And then it allows you to optimize the radiator intake, side pod undercut, all of that detail to catch the flow coming off the front wing and make sure that you're um you know you're you're managing that flow which is much much more productive to lap time than than basically moving a a small turbo intake um you know whenever we look at the old airboxes the normally aspirated engines you were getting something like 25 30 horsepower out of them at the end of a straight um but obviously that's just at the end of the straight when you've got maximum speed high pressure um so it's, it's one of those sort of situations that did work on a normally aspirated engine. The turbo shouldn't need it, but it still does get cooler and more consistent flow up there uh, than it would do with the, and the radiator intake. So it's a, it's a bit of a balancing act, but regulations usually define these sort of things. 
And our final question actually is less of a question and more just filed under general correspondence. And actually, we mentioned this in passing on our last podcast that we saw one of your creations, Jordan 195, driving past us at Silverstone on a flatbed truck. And it turns out the owner, Steve Griffiths, is a listener. So we're delighted to receive an email from him telling us it was Chassis 3. It spent a dozen years in the Peugeot Museum, apparently, before he bought it a few years ago. And Steve rebuilt and recommissioned it for demo use. Apparently, that engine that let go in quite a big way, uh, judging by the uh, the video uh, we saw of it, proper old school smoky engine failure. That actual engine only had a, a couple of dozen miles on it, so quite painful. We probably should have been more sympathetic when we talked about it, and certainly would have been had we known we're, <laughs> we were being listened to. But does it give you some satisfaction to know so many of your cars are out there still entertaining fans and frustrating owners? Um, yeah, frustrating owners. Yeah, join the frustration. I had a few of those myself. Um, actually, interestingly, I was up at Silverstone. I went to the museum with my grandkids this, this weekend. And uh, there's a Jordan 191 in there. And um, it was nice to see it, you know, and have it had a little um, sit on it and a couple of pictures taken. Um, so it's nice to see those cars around. And, that, you know, that, uh, the 195 that Steve has, he's done a fantastic job on the rebuild. I was looking through the WhatsApp pages um, a little bit earlier just with all the pictures. And um, I sympathize with you on the engine failure. Uh, I had seen a few of those myself. Um, and I was reading about your air valve problem as well. And, and that was one of the major problems we had with the Peugeot at the beginning was air valve problems. And it, it, um, it actually came from the heads filling up with oil. And the, the air valve system was hydraulic and it was getting oil into the air side. And then, you know, just going solid and basically suffering the consequences that you have with your, uh, your head with your engine where a head falls off a valve. But I'm not saying that was it by any means, but it's obviously very painful and, uh, one of the things that Peugeot had at that point in time was a was a system where the the engine um, would shut down if the air valve system started to leak. The, the the engine would just shut itself down or would shut its revs down. So it managed it. So you'd never really see too much blue smoke like you saw from yours, Steve. But um, you would I mean, just the same thing. The engine didn't fail visually, but it failed um, as far as performance was concerned and as far as race results were concerned. But that was a, you know, it was a funny little car that because we changed just from the 195 from the 194, the 194 Brian Hart's lovely little V10 engine in it, and we went to Peugeot, and uh, it, it, you know, it should have been, it should have been the best thing in the world, but Peugeot were so much more difficult to work with than than Brian Hart, and um, they had a lot of problems, but they wouldn't admit to their problems, you know, so it was very very difficult to sort of get solutions to problems, and the air valve system was just one of them. But through time it got there, it was nice to see that the uh, second and third in, in Montreal was the 195 was a nice a nice weekend with Rubens and uh, Eddie Irvine. Um, so yeah, wish wish you all the best with it. It looks really good. I'd love to see it sometime. Yeah, it's great that these cars are out there. I, d- I did have a number of of uh, wonders through the, the little demo paddock they had with various F1 cars. And uh, yeah, that that Jordan was very, very nicely turned out, although there was always a lot of that work going on around the back of it, unsurprisingly. So uh, again, that was a, a familiar scene, but it's great because that's what these cars are, are there for. It, it's nice when they're, you see them static, as you say, Jordan 191 in the museum, but racing cars belong on track, don't they? And it's great to see them, even if you do sometimes get the uh, the slight risk. Obviously, we, you may have seen um, from the Goodwood Festival of Speed uh, last weekend, there was a, uh, the weekend before rather, there was a 1990 Leighton House that had a, had a, an incident shall we say which is a bit painful but also it's kind of what these cars are for isn't it <laughs> you know it, it's nice to see them in action even if it does sometimes go wrong or get very expensive sometimes 
Yeah, I mean, that's going to happen. That's, that's motor racing. Um, sometimes it will go wrong and it's, you know, it, it is very expensive. It's one of those sort of situations, I think, where, it's, you know, keeping those cars running is very important to understanding where it's come from. And uh, again, going back to the Jordan 191 sitting at Silverstone and uh, the museum, it's, it was sitting beside a Red Bull. I forget what year of Red Bull it was. But the Red Bull just looked massive. You know, absolutely massive beside Jordan. And, you know, whenever we were running the 191, it was it was a massive car as such for us. So it was quite interesting to see that. But, uh, no, they, looking through the, the, the 195 Facebook pictures and just looking at the front suspension, the, the, the dampers and the front roll bar and the third spring mechanism, it's just so nice to see the detail. And, and it reminds you of, you know, what you did. So uh, that, that sort of stuff, I think, is, is always quite quite good fun to just click the old brain again and say, oh yeah, I remember that, you know, was, that was good fun. <laughs> but yeah, um, as I say, all the best with it, Steve. It's, it's going to be painful, but I'm sure you'll see through the pain and, uh, and get it back together again, and I'd love to see it sometime. Yeah, well, thanks to Steve for uh, for keeping the Jordan 195 going, as much of a battle as, as, that, <laughs> as that seems to be at the moment, and uh, thanks for, for dropping us a line. Yeah, it was... Uh, it's always great to see those cars and at Silverstone talking about that uh, evolution they had. I think the oldest car they had was a Cooper T51. They had a T51 and a T53, which was the 59 and 60 championship winners with Jack Brabham, all the way up, I think, to a 2002 Jordan. So in, in a few paces, you get the whole evolution, which is, uh, which is great to see. And, uh, with a bit of luck, hopefully we'll see that Peugeot 195 chassis number three in action again, uh, sometime down the line. Uh, well, thanks very much, uh, Gary. And if you've got a question for Gary, remember to send it to podcast at the race.com that's podcast at the hyphen race.com because we do really enjoy tackling your questions or observations or general correspondence if you've got an old f1 car that gary's responsible for or even a, a non-f1 car that gary's responsible for there's a few ansons out there i saw one of those at snetterton uh, a few weeks ago uh drop us a line yeah thanks very much for listening thanks gary We'll be back in a few weeks with the next edition of the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. You've been listening to the Race F1 Tech Show brought to you by Aramco. Be sure to like, follow or subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. The Athletic.